You're listening. You're listening to a, to a podcast. Should we try again? This, this by introduction is definitely an interesting idea. You're listening to a podcast of spurious morality. And welcome to a podcast of spurious morality. I'm Johnston, and with me this week, I have Greg. Hello. I have Gareth. Hello again. And I have Mansour. Hello. It's it's a busy episode. It's a busy one this week. Uh, but we're talking about a very busy episode of Doctor Who, so we've got an awful lot to talk about. Um, so this week, we're going to look at The Giggle, uh, which is obviously the latest episode of Doctor Who, the final of the three 60th anniversary specials and um it does a bit so here here is the spoiler alert there is so much to spoil and so much that will be spoiled in this episode that if you've not watched it yet go and watch it before you listen to this because every second of this episode is a spoiler practically um we'll dive straight in and uh, just sort of overall thoughts on the episode itself. Uh, do you want to go first, Greg? Wow, where do you, where do you even start? I mean, it's 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 such a, a an RTD finale kind of episode. I mean, it's just so packed full of, of of stuff. I mean, you've got the return of a classic villain in the Toy Maker, which means because it, the last episode was in 1966. You have to explain who the toy maker is and how to defeat the toy maker, and then you have to defeat the toy maker. And that, I mean, that's that's enough for a story. But on top of that, you know, you've got uh, the doctor regenerating, or in this case, by generating. You've got the introduction, therefore, of a new doctor who actually needs to perform for a good chunk of the episode rather than just pop up right at the end. Uh, you bring back an old companion. You have to finish the story of this current doctor's travels with Donna. Like you, you have to put all of this stuff into this one hour running time. And honestly, I think they pull it off for the most part. Like it does feel full, but at the same time, it, it feels very rewarding. Like I, I think that it's structured well. I just think it's rushed a bit, but other than that, I really don't have you know many complaints, and I and I, I I personally will talk about all this later, of course. But I I thought the idea of the bi generation was fascinating, and I absolutely adored the ending. Like this this was a, this was a really good one. You know, was it was it my favorite of the three? I don't know. I really like Wild Blue Yonder as well, but this one was really good. It yeah, you're right. It had an insane amount to do, and uh, 
really not that long to do it. I think it ended up being one minute longer than the other specials or something like that. So it really is just packed to, packed with things and things that change the past of the show and the future of the show and establish all sorts of new stuff and uh, set us up quite nicely for potentially, what, two spin-off series there, maybe? Um, sets up that a, the Master might be returning at some point and it, all sorts. It's brilliant. Uh, Gareth, what about you? Um, well, I did enjoy it, but it is incredibly busy and... Honestly, I'm not really sure uh, how I felt about it because it's hitting so many notes uh, right away. Uh, you know, agree with Greg. It's very RTD finale. Um, it just has that feeling. It even includes a bit where the Doctor gets to say, you know, humanity. Oh, it's wonderful, but also terrible, which <laughs> very much was a moment of like, ah, Russell's back. He loves that. Um, but yeah, there's so much going on that it was just like having a you know three-course meal or something all in one go and it really kind of made me it, it sort of put into sharp relief for me that the specials uh have kind of felt like there is a season of doctor who that russell went off and made that is not wildly dissimilar from his previous you know efforts and he's chopped off episode one episode 10 maybe for wild blue yonder and episode 13 and we've just got those and I kind of, one thing I think this episode maybe was lacking was it would have been nice if we could have sort of seeded in the toy maker a bit more through the three to sort of unify them. Um, we can't for plot reasons. They do establish in this one that the events of Wild Blue Yonder are what made this happen. But yeah, it, it felt a little bit like we'd kind of chucked a season of Doctor Who into a blender to get these three specials. And that was very, very apparent in this episode because there's so much happening but yeah we'll, we'll get to it but the stuff in it that's big and weird i, I think i'm okay with so I, I i walked away from it kind of thinking yeah that was all right it was it was an awful lot but yeah i don't think it was a it was a mess as such it's just it's possibly too much to make sense of in one go and of course, we're all here less than 24 hours later trying to pick it apart for this. Mm. And it, it, is, it still feels like it's a, a very initial sort of take that uh, I'm kind of giving here. Like, I don't think the excitement is quite worn off yet. And I think that if I were to watch it again, I might start picking holes in it and that kind of thing. But immediate reaction is, yeah, that was great. That was good. It did a lot. It was very busy. Uh, Mansell, what about you? What are your thoughts on it? Uh, it was very packed. This could have easily have been restructured as a two-part finale because there was so much going on there. You could have had you know a whole episode in the past and the toy makers' domain, and then you could have had a whole final episode back in back in the present. Um, like I was thinking at first, it doesn't really stop for breath, but I think it actually does. Like there's a couple of nice moments that are squeezed in earlier on, uh, and then the whole ending is quite is quite leisurely and it's not it doesn't feel rushed to me at all it's uh it's almost quite you know return of the king ish like taking a good chunk of the running or end, or end of time like taking a good chunk of the end of the episode to to wind down and give uh, characters a lot of closure uh so yeah could, could have been longer to give a bit more breathing room but i think they found that breathing room within this running time um and yeah just an initial impression 
I really liked it and I like how it works with the other two specials and um, how they all kind of they're, they're, they're distinct stories in isolation but they they tell a complete story about the 14th doctor and how he's a little bit different from the 10th and uh, and why that is which all ties into the the ending as well and I think it it finally gave us the the Donner ending that we wanted if you know the Donner ending that we've actually wished we had since 2008 because it was it was a pretty horrible place to leave Donner Journey's End was and End of Time obviously didn't do anything about it um or I I don't know I I think there's controversy there whether or not a a viewer (laughs) is happy with how it was left but yeah it's certainly nice isn't it it's a very nice yeah it's 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 a happy ending for Donner um which which I'm I'm glad we do have now uh but we'll talk more about the end afterwards um towards the end believe it or not um so obviously the sort of focal point of this was that it brought back uh the toy maker who hasn't been on telly uh since the mid 60s but has popped up in big finish and comics and books and that kind of thing and this episode kind of conveniently just ignores them a bit and let, let's just pretend that we're talking about the celestial toy maker and nothing else here and i'm actually okay with that i don't feel as though a huge chunk of big finish has just been thrown into some kind of cannon shredder um but i thought the character was great i thought it was a great portrayal uh, neil patrick harris is quite possibly the sort of biggest name that's ever been in doctor who uh certainly currently you know um and what a brilliant bit of casting more evidence and we've talked about this in the two previous episodes where we've looked at the other specials you can see that budget on screen like we're attracting hollywood now and it looked great and the toy makers realm was fantastic we didn't spend a lot of time there i thought we might spend a bit more time there but uh yeah so let's just talk about the toy maker for a bit you know compare it to celestial toy maker talk about whether we can in any way, shape or form reconcile this with expanded universe stuff. Uh, so, Greg, do you want to go first? Talk to us about the Toymaker. Um, I think the, the the Toymaker obviously comes off much better here than in the 1960s serial. Um, the, the issue with that story is that it is incredibly tedious and boring and largely uninteresting. <laughs> We mostly watch uh, the characters just play board games at each other for an hour and a half, and and it, it's it's really not good. It's it's one of the worst Doctor Who serials, period. But the toy maker himself is a is a fascinating figure in that because you know first of all it's suggested very strongly that the Doctor has met the toy maker before that even, and just the idea of this being that's so powerful that it can you know, force the doctor into playing this game is, is interesting. And I think that because the story was lost and because people don't see how bad it is that they, uh, you know, that, that, that just the character was able to kind of separate from the story and become this sort of iconic figure. And then in the eighties, we were supposed to have another toy maker story, but of course we didn't get it. So that just adds to that legend. And so everyone has like the toy maker built up as this like legend of Dr. Who. And I think in the giggle for the first time, we see that concept actually used to a fuller extent. I mean, the, 
RTD loves his uh, villain musical scenes, evidently, with um, you know the master at the end of season three, and now Neil Patrick Harris lip syncing to Spice Girls here, which I thought was absolutely delightful. But that scene is actually terrifying. I mean, the point where he turns the the, the unit soldiers into balls, and then to, to look into the ball, and there's a screaming face in it, and it's like, good lord, that's uncomfortable, and. You, it really it demonstrates simultaneously how powerful the toy maker is and how like disinterested he is in you know the value of of life or anything like that and it's you know this this mad trickster god basically and it, it that that to me works really well Neil Patrick Harris himself was excellent um, I I would be very happy to bring this character back at some point if you could get him again, because I thought he absolutely nailed it. Um, I think that they, you know, they, they threw some interesting things in there. You know, like the doctor says, oh, we can be celestial um, because of course they don't want to use that term related to the character because I know we had a, you know, a, a linguistic debate about, you know, what the, you know, the double meaning of celestial was and, some of the you know potentially racist undertones of the original story. Um, so of course they you know they, they stayed away from from that aspect of it, but then they kind of nodded to it as well with the brief moment of of, of racism from the toy maker right at the beginning. Um, so they didn't completely ignore that aspect of the original story. Um, I, Really, I the, the only downside that I have to the toy maker here is the ending of the episode, which I felt was just a little flat. Like the the toy maker is this insanely powerful character, and yet he's defeated through this fundamentally silly game of catch. And while that's very Doctor Who, it just kind of doesn't really sell the character at the level that it that it could. But to me, I think that just kind of shows that. Ultimately, like, if you're going to beat the toy maker, you have to beat him at a game. And so in the Celestial Toy Maker in 66, it's just the doctor doing that thing where you move the tiles between the sticks, and here it's playing catch. And I don't think there is a game you could play that, you know, would would be that much more exciting. So I don't know that there is a, a way really to do that. And I think they did the best they could, and I think that that's a very memorable villain. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think you're right about us sort of finally seeing this character at full power, as it were. Um, you, you know, it, the Toy Maker is sort of one of the most powerful beings in the Hooniverse. And whether that's just sort of fandom has built him up to that level over 60 years almost, or whether that was originally intended, it, it's it, he's certainly such a really interesting concept. And I guess he's kind of up there with the Guardians and Fenric and the gods of Ragnarok and that kind of thing as sort of all-powerful and all-consuming. Um, Gareth, what are your thoughts on the Toymaker? Um, <clears throat> well, yeah, it's definitely a huge step up from the original story. And I think one of the problems people have with the story, rightly, is that it's so episodic because you show up in the Toymaker's realm, you know there are, you've got to beat him. So it's a case of you must play games or you must answer riddles. And the problem with that setup is it can be as long or as short as you want. And everything that goes in the middle is quite disposable. 
there was a big finish lost story called the queen of time which kind of followed the same pattern and it's very enjoyable but again you feel like all of the stuff in the middle could be any length and the mind robber which everybody loves i think follows a similar path but just executes it a lot better so yeah with the original celestial toy maker you you believe that the character is powerful and everything but you know maybe it's not the best showcase for that and in a way i feel like this is a much better showcase because the casting is is incredible um I, yeah i loved the the creepy spice girls bit I mean, I'm not really someone who listens to Spice Girls a lot, but that song is now going to be synonymous with uh, terrifying body horror. <laughs> so good job. Um, I do think the ending was uh, a little bit damp just with the you've got to beat the toy maker or something, because it's, it's probably worth noting that the original Doctor cheated when uh, when he won the Trilogic game. He had to impersonate the toy maker in order to uh, play the final move from within the TARDIS, because he was kind of boxed into a corner that way um i'm a bit surprised they didn't bring it up but maybe that's a level of uh, law they don't want to get into but um yeah so i was kind of thinking my god how's he going to do it this time and it's a moment of um it's it's like he's just good enough so he's just you know the two doctors obviously uh they can throw the ball and he'll not catch it and i kind of felt a little bit like that's a little bit convenient um you know and i do agree like the doctor successfully chucking a ball you know there is something a little bit charmingly haphazard about that that's quite doctor who but uh as a solution it in a way i was i felt like i was kind of seeing the sort of the march of the last 20 minutes needing to happen and it just being like oh let's just get there so i would agree that it's it's hard to come up with games that are sort of interesting but at the same time, I, I really hope we see the character again. And there's, there's no reason we won't because, you know, he's not dead or anything. Um, but I want, you know, the focus to be on that and to kind of really get into the kind of nightmarish craziness. Because all of the havoc he's wreaking, um, we kind of step away from it. And we know it's there and it's carrying on. And at the end of the episode, it's, it's neatly tidied away. But I really wanted to kind of dive into it and have more games. And what it reminded me of, it's interesting you mentioned uh, ex expanded media earlier on. I don't know if anybody else got this, but it really reminded me of a death in the family, the big finish story, because the word lord is quite an equivalent character in that he's you know he's got powers that are just sort of beyond your comprehension, and he's coming back from a certain realm and he's furious with the doctor, and there's this just enormous atmosphere of the entire world is going awry because of this one character who's got a vendetta. And uh, I don't know if Russell T. Davis went off and listened to Death in the Family at some point. He should. It's really good. Um, but yeah, it was it was a very similar kind of build up to that. And that story can kind of focus more on uh, what he's doing and the chaos of that. So, so yeah, I thought it was a good showcase. Neil Patrick Harris was fantastic. Um, but I felt like the constraints of uh, this episode has a lot of heavy lifting to do potentially meant that we were seeing a bit of a thriftier version of the character and his abilities than maybe we could but that's okay i think they will probably bring him back and we'll you know get some more craziness on display i, I quite liked the fact that he was defeated by <laughs> david tennant chucking a spherical object because it's how david tennant's doctor defeated his first ever villain he threw the satsuma in christmas invasion and I thought there was a nice little True. bit of 
bookending there. Um, so I, I'm not unhappy with the game of catch, actually. And I'd much rather have a two-minute game of catch where we just see the brand-new Doctor and the 14th Doctor both having a bit of a laugh, actually, having a bit of fun. Um, I'd much rather that than the four episodes of the Celestial Toymaker where we have to roll the dice and go back three spaces and all that kind of thing. So, yeah, I, I, I wasn't unhappy with it, and I was I was kind of glad we did that over a game of Snakes and Ladders or whatever. I, I do uh, real quick just want to talk about the... Um... I don't know if they if they filmed like a different game of catch and it didn't work and they had to come back to it. But you can really tell in the edit that they didn't have much there. Like every throw of the ball is a close up on who's throwing it, and then you cut immediately to a close up of the person catching it who already has the ball in their hand. Like you very rarely actually see anyone throw a ball, and I'm I'm just wondering if that was the intent from the beginning or or what. Just covering up bad throwing. Maybe. <laughs> uh, Mansour, your thoughts on the toy maker? Um, just to say, like I've, uh, I, I've got a lot of affection for the original story, but that's only because I came to it through the Target novel and I filled out all the visuals and bizarre characters with my mind. Um, like I really loved the mind robber novelization for the same reasons. Like the Doctor's out of his comfort zone, outside of normal space and time. And it's just a fascinating setup when you're used to like the rules of a regular Doctor Who story. Um, but I do uh, agree, Greg, that like when I saw the surviving episode, it did all look a bit more sort of tawdry and ordinary than it all was in my imagination. Um, but on the toy maker himself, um, yeah, agree what others have said. And and just to say, like he 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 puts on all these different accents, but when he switches to his English accent I took that to be like his default and like the mask slipping and when he did that I could really really see the original portrayal um coming through uh in a, in a sort of like nicely creepy and um uh, uncanny way uh yeah and th they don't directly tie to all those extended universe stories we've mentioned um but what they did tie to was the idea of him being this godlike elemental being, which is very like, you know, 90s novels in terms of ideas, totally in the spirit of those extended media stories. Um, and on that subject, you know, we mentioned we want to see the toy maker again. I'm, I'm actually like, I wouldn't mind that, but I'm actually more excited about stuff that Russell T Davies has hinted about in terms of there being a wider pantheon of gods. Again, that's because I'm a novels fan and it's like bringing up lots of memories of what they did in those books. Um, but, you know, they mention He Who Waits and there's, you know, these hordes and armies that are on the way. And I'm really excited about how that's going to pan out. Like, you know, who, who are the people that the toy maker is scared of? Um, so, yeah, that's, that's what I'm looking forward to. It really does feel as though it is venturing into sort of genuine higher power territory in the Hooniverse, which, yes, you know, we've had before. We've had big finish arcs about the Seventh Doctor deciding he's going to take on a load of gods. And, you know, we have had the Guardians and the Key to Time done a couple of times in a couple of ways and all that sort of thing. And if if we're going in that direction, and I, I, I think we should be going in that direction because 
Doctor Who is bigger than it's ever been before. It has got more cash behind it. It's got flipping Disney behind it. So maybe it can actually realise all of this sort of thing um, in a in, you know in a way that works. And you know, I've I've mentioned things like the gods of Ragnarok already, um, three statues in chairs, and I've mentioned Fenric already, and it's the bloke that's been in the other three episodes, but his eyes are yellow now. Um, we can do something bigger than that. All the stuff with the toy maker going on. That big music scene with the Spice Girls and, you know, Greg mentioned the absolutely horrific imagery of uh, the soldiers being turned into balls and one of them, a face in a ball, screaming. It was very Twin Peaks. There was something very Twin Peaks about that. Um, Yeah, you know, finally we can sort of have a really good version of this kind of villain on screen and it isn't just a bit of a dull set at the back of a studio or that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that's exciting. But but I hope they hold on to the human element as well. And I think they did that with this story where you do have, you know, that sort of Neil Gaiman approach of like a god, but they're walking around in human form because that allows you to engage with the character. But then, yes, all this extra, you know, money and resource can go into, give you know, a little bit of showiness and theatrics and special effects to complement that human performance I, w- I wouldn't want to like have the doctor just encountering like big expensive cgi uh gods uh having a performer like uh, neil patrick harris at the center of it is still really key to it i think well that's what they did with uh impossible planet and satan pit where they had the gigantic cgi devil but yeah. then said well actually this is just an empty shell of the real yeah quote-unquote devil's spirit is entered a person and then you actually get you know a human performance of it so exactly yeah i think i think that kind of thing could work really well i think in both cases we do get the best of both worlds and uh it's um you know in both of them it's kind of played for horror on quite a few occasions so yeah hopefully there'll still be that balance there'll still be a performance because i wouldn't want something like the gods of Ragnarok to come back, but they're just a big CGI cloud or something. Um, I'd quite like it to actually, you know, go somewhere and that sort of thing. But I'm I'm looking forward to kind of what we've got. We've had a few little hints of what's to come now, you know, with the Meep referencing the boss and um, as I mentioned earlier, the tooth that supposedly has the master trapped in it and, all that sort of thing. There's there's a lot being set up. There's a lot that's going to link to these specials. And I've heard it described somewhere that these specials are kind of the finale to the series of Doctor Who that started with Rose in 2005. But I don't think it is any more than, let's say, The Day of the Doctor was, which also set up plenty of stuff for moving forward and all that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's... It, it's going to be interesting to see where we go next and what we have next and what's bigger than the toy maker and that kind of thing. So we we were introduced to a a new concept, um, one that potentially will change the Who universe forever, uh, and that is by generation. Instead of one Doctor dying and being replaced by another, we have a Doctor splitting out from the other one as part of the regeneration process and. 
you know, regenerations going wrong or being strange or that kind of, you know, not exactly new concepts. They're not even new concepts for Russell T. Davis. Um, but this is a good one, and it allowed this to be a multi-doctor story uh, almost by stealth. Um, I really like how it played out. I really like how they did it. I really like the inter- interaction between the two doctors, and we now have almost as if we have two current doctors running around um, Donna gets her own David Tennant, just as Rose did. And we have Shooty Gatwa going off into space and being the Doctor. Um, so what do we think of the concept of bi-generation and how long do we think it's going to be before we see 14 again? Uh, so Greg, you go first. I like the idea. I think it works well as sort of a new way to approach a multi-doctor story. We've never had one where the current doctor meets a future doctor. And I mean, obviously there's a debate over who's the quote unquote current doctor in those scenes, but that's essentially what this is. And I, I thought that was fascinating. I, you know, I, 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 the, the controversy that's erupted over this seems to largely stem from what RTD was saying in the commentary about how all oh, this applies to all the previous re- you know regenerations and so on. And like, I don't really care much about that unless, you know, it actually turns up in the TV show. So I'm not really like engaging with that idea. Cause like he can say whatever he wants, but if it never comes up in the show, what difference does it make? You can interpret it however you want really. And to me, just in, in this specific instance, um, I, I think it's more of a function of what they wanted to do in production terms. Because while I agree that you know this isn't like this defined end of, of Doctor Who or anything like that, it is sort of... Uh, an episode that's intended to wind down one era of Doctor Who and build up another era of Doctor Who. And because of that, it's very difficult to do it in the traditional way where Doctor number 14 dies and then Doctor number 15 is born because now you have that just direct connection between the two of them. And, you know, the, the Doctor's circumstances, you know, create his successor, which is how it always happens. Whereas here, you can actually give like the pre-season 14 era of the show an ending. You know, I, I've always thought that, you know, if you were going to end Doctor Who, like, you know, not just like stop it and just have the Doctor, you know, just go off on adventures. But if you were actually going to come up with a last episode, it would have to be the Doctor finally finding a way to retire. Because you can't just, you know, you can't end 60 years of the show with the Doctor, like, dying heroically. Like, that would be unrewarding no matter what the circumstance was. So it would have to be the Doctor retiring. And by doing it this way, they actually are able to give the quote-unquote old show that ending. And at the same time, they're able to start a new show. So, you know, I don't think this is really intended to set up, like, ongoing David Tennant Catherine Tate episodes or anything like that. I think it's intended just as an ending to that. And we're meant to take away from it that eventually this doctor is going to die somehow. And I think it's a little confusing how it was put forward, but the impression I get from it is that at some point this, you know, doctor 14 is going to, 
I suppose, regenerate or just die and disappear. And then Shutigatwa will appear back in this episode, having experienced all of David Tennant's decompression time and be the healthier, more well-adjusted character that we saw. You know, I, I think, so, you know, as, as a tool to accomplish all that, I thought it was very smart. I thought it was elegantly done. Um, in terms of like the fiction of the show, it's weird. We've never seen it before, but that's been the part and parcel of regeneration since the beginning. So I, I really had no issue with it. In fact, I liked it. I, the more I was watching it, the more I was like, you know what, this works. Because, I mean, anything that gives us that scene where the 15th Doctor comforts his former self with a hug like that, that was worth it to me. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, I mean, if like I said before, if nothing else, it allowed for this to be a very, very different kind of multi-doctor episode. Um, and yeah, it, it, it set up for the future. It sort of uh, made sure that the past is nice and securely settled, I guess. Um, yeah, it, it, it's 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 a great old concept, I think. Uh, Gareth, what about you? What do you think of by generation? Um, well, I'd heard kind of rumours online, uh, not from looking for them, they just were there, uh, about some sort of split regeneration. And it sounded sort of, oh, God, what's that about? And obviously Russell T. Davis put out his, for the love of God, brace yourself for spoilers warning, which was quite fun, um, just before the episode aired. So I was kind of thinking, okay, if this happens, you know, all hands on deck, this is going to be weird. Once it actually happened, I mean, first of all, I thought they carried it off very well. Um, all of the stuff, I mean, really just the fact that he arrives and he's not in a crisis, as the Doctor usually is after a regeneration, gave it a very different flavour. And he was able to be comforting to uh, Tennant's Doctor, which was just something we've never seen before. You know, famously, what do you get when you interact to uh, two sort of Doctors who are next to each other bickering? That's that's the rule. That's what you always get. And this was totally the opposite. So I thought they carried it off very well. I don't fully understand the specifics of what it was that actually happened. I don't know if that matters. It could just be me being a bit dense in the moment. But, you know, it did make me think uh, it's sort of hinted that he is going to benefit from David Tennant's ongoing characterization. So therefore, he must be from the future but I don't really know what that means. Like, uh, you know, eventually David Tennant will turn into the next guy and the next guy will quantum leap forward into this moment, maybe. Or he's a completely separate being and David Tennant will go off and, uh, as Greg says, maybe die or maybe regenerate. I don't know. I kind of feel like he's probably not just going to die because that's probably a bit too close to the Metacrisis Doctor who's over living with Rose. Um, and he's effectively mortal. Um, so on the whole, though, it was surprisingly not an issue for me um, because I thought, well, I don't know what difference this actually makes other than the fact that there's more doctors out there. And there's always doctors out there, you know, because of the nature of time travel. There's always go to any time and place. It's unknown which doctor you're going to bump into. So that's still true. You know, you've got Gatua flying around out there. On the one hand, potentially you've got Tennant flying out there as well. And then you might have Smith or Hartnell or whoever. So I thought, in the moment, I don't really know that this makes a great deal of difference to Doctor Who going forward. I understand that it makes a huge difference for branding, because you can say to new viewers, 
uh, here we go. Jumping on point. Who is the Doctor? Well, kind of a mysterious figure, but he starts with Shooty Gatwa, and that's kind of all you need to know. I respect all of that. That's fine. Um, but in terms of Tenon, I've really got no idea because I've never really bought into the idea that, um, you know, he says, oh, uh, living day by day is just the one adventure I can never have because it's just like, well, you know, just do it. Yeah, you can. <laughs> and we've seen him try it. You know, Matt Smith tried it in the, in the Power of Three for plot reasons, and he was bored out of his mind. Um, so we can see that Tennant is very happy in that situation. Obviously, he loves Donna. He's, he's really fond of Donna's family. So, yeah, I totally accept it's a happy ending, but he's got a TARDIS. And we know he's already been on trips. So I kind of think, well, he's not really settled. I mean, he kind of says, oh, yeah, you know, this is my family. This is my home. And, and I get it. That's that's all fine. But again, I kind of feel like I don't really know that this is wildly different from the norm. This is a bit like Pertwee. You know, he finally breaks out of his exile on Earth. But then he obviously still loves Earth. So he's still buzzing around and still hanging around with unit whenever he can so i'm very interested to know what's going to happen going forward i feel like you could pack them off you could say that's a you know golden wrap or whatever they call it for david tennant but plot wise i don't think there's any reason to because he can still get in the tardis and just go so, and he will you know i mean he had the choice on the spot to uh basically bequeath the tardis if he wanted to and he said no so I just, you know, people can have different reactions and that's all perfectly fine. For me, I don't believe he would stop doing Doctor stuff. And then that raises the question of, you know, an asteroid hits Earth. Suti Gatwa is over there on Mars doing something else. Does David Tennant not jump into the fray? I don't think so. I think he will. So it's basically, it's a question of, I'm fine with it as it is. But I'm very interested to see how this pans out. I mean, it could absolutely be a crossroads and see you later, alligator, David Tennant. Could be. But if it was, I kind of feel like this is an awful lot of effort for that. So, yeah, we'll see. I'm fine with it, but we'll see. I think, to be perfectly honest, it's. I know Russell T. Davis has clarified it a bit in the commentary. I've not actually uh, listened to that yet, but... In all honesty, I think it's going to be left as ambiguous as possible so it can be whatever it is needed to be further down the line. Um, and I think that's probably the best way of doing it. Like, here's a concept, something happened, we don't really understand it, but if in four, five, six, ten, twenty, whatever years' time, um, this this particular little uh, bit of the Hooniverse is required to be dusted off then we can do that and we can be a little bit more specific about what it is and again it's not the first time that that's happened uh mansour your thoughts on by generation yeah just on that last point like it's uh that is a good thing about you know why why wouldn't david tennant's doctor jump in and help but it's not a unique problem you get this with like comic book universes all the time you have all these overpowered heroes and you just find a way of making it work narratively in, in each individual story by just either ignoring it or, or not drawing attention to it. And, and and we kind of had it with Torchwood as well. Like, you know, um, Torchwood came up against some pretty big stuff and um, the Doctor uh, didn't come and help. 
and you can you just explain it as like you know well it's a fixed point you can't interfere or there's some there's always a way around it but but on yeah on the by generation i think like we've said we've all got lots of questions uh yeah you know whether 15 will by generate when he leaves what's the future of the david tennant 14th doctor is it a linear split uh, does this tie into Tales of the TARDIS, how this affects all the extended media like Endgame or Divided Loyalties or Solitaire? That Those are all things that we care about and we're thinking about. But I think it's worth keeping sight of the fact that most people don't. <laughs> and most people are just going to see a really cool new twist on a regeneration that's going to be exciting and shocking and surprising in the moment. And they're going to see a cool new Doctor being introduced. And that's that's the core of it. And for those of us that do care, I think the game of Doctor Who is is trying to understand it all and trying to make it all fit in the most elegant way possible with, you know, uh, retcons and uh, and just like looking back at that extended universe and seeing how all those pieces that really don't fit together, how we can make them fit. Um and I think like shaking things up in this way is necessary and really healthy. Uh, it, I think it does truly set us up for a new era and it just sort of also sends the message that we are, you know, where there is a reason for it, we are going to break rules or establish rules or change rules. Um, and that's what Doctor Who always does. It's introduced complete like left turns to the mythology uh like many times over its history and and just like finally on the all this stuff about changing the mythology if we want to get into specifics there's like a dozen different ways you can make it fit like the thing that i was thinking of is that all this stuff about the doctor's past changing i think the toy maker has a line about that as well uh it's very in line with stuff you've seen in novels like Unnatural History that are all about, you know, the Doctor's past is actually in flux. Um, it can't be pinned down. And that's kind of what defines him, not being able to be defined. So he's, you know, a human scientist who built the TARDIS in his backyard. He's the half-human son of a Gallifreyan explorer. They're the timeless child. And now they are the, the Doctorverse that, you know, there's potentially older versions of all these previous Doctors and future doctors out there um so yeah i thought as an idea and in execution i thought it was great and ultimately it, it you know it it as i've said earlier it opens the door for spin-off series adventures with past doctors and it lets them basically do big finish on the telly uh without interrupting what i suppose would be considered the the primary continuity that yeah. the most recent doctor and that kind of thing they can play their age like they, they like, like big finish could switch to having those actors playing the age they are now rather than having to you know try and sound like what they were 30 40 years ago I yeah think the ship sailed on that quite a while ago <laughs> <laughs> in fact didn't didn't big finish go through a very very brief phase of doing that like i'm thinking of um uh, Gallifrey series four had like contemporary pictures of um, Louise Jameson and Lala Ward on the cover. Like they looked the age they were at recording, as opposed to the age they were 
well, the age they appeared when they played the characters. Um, so I, I, I do think they, that there was a bit of a, oh, let's use current cast photos thing, but I think it sort of disappeared as quickly as it I arrived. Imagine, I imagine it would free you up as a performer as well, because it's not just about, okay, you can relax and just do your sort of natural voice for your age. You can now tell new stories that take those classic doctors in new directions and introduce threat and jeopardy that wouldn't be there if you're just fitting everything into like these little um, existing gaps in established history. And it, we've it's... seen some of it. I mean, they've, they've had, you know, the Big Finish did the older Nyssa arc and the older Perry, mm. I guess, arc that they never finished. For companions. But... They've done it a lot for companions. But, but never for a doctor, right. Mm. Uh, apart from once and future, I guess. In fact, it's not a completely dissimilar concept, uh, once and future and the giggle. Um, they've both done something weird with regeneration. And whatever that's... the curator is too, I guess. Yeah. Well, that's it though. Is is the 14th Doctor now who goes on to be the curator? Does he just keep picking old faces? Is he going to be an older Tom Baker and an older Colin Baker? Um, will David Tennant be back to play the curator in thirty years' time? Um, all this, all this sort of thing. Um, but I, I really like what it's done, and I don't know exactly what it's done, you know, as we've said. Uh, but I like the the opportunities it presents, and I like the idea that uh, the past is just a little closer than it used to be potentially. Um. Well, we're nearly out of time, so uh, is there anything else you guys want to add? I guess just on, on the ending point, I, I think this works really nicely as an ending to the 2005 and forward era, because that whole theme of that, of the show since then, has been about trauma and loss, and I thought, we talked so much about the bi-generation, that's what's generating discussion, but I thought the most affecting bit of this episode was the doctor talking to himself and giving himself permission to just stop and look after himself and that little kiss on the forehead and all of that so yeah apart from all the mythology vanish stuff i feel like that that's the bit that stood out to me as well yeah and and that kind of links into the point i wanted to make we didn't you know talk too much about him but shuti gatwa is Utterly fantastic in this. He just grabs the role and owns it from minute one. And I like that they pretty much just dispensed with the whole post-regenerative trauma thing. Like he just is born immediately as a fully formed and confident and self-assured doctor. And like I said, he he owns it. And that that last moment of him walking around the TARDIS console, just cheekily kicking David Tennant out, like watching that, I was like, Oh yeah, this is the guy. This is it. Let's go. So yeah, great, great job. Can't wait to see more. Yeah, absolutely. We'll uh, we'll do a really, really, really proper in depth discussion about him when we've seen a little bit more after the Christmas special, I think. But what a absolutely brilliant way to get started! It's immediately you have the challenge of playing the Doctor alongside the overwhelmingly popular David Tennant, you know, the, who is undeniably the Tom Baker of the 2005 plus era in terms of, you know, popularity and association with the show and that kind of thing. Um, and he held his own. 
he was the doctor next to everybody's favourite doctor. Um, so yeah, excellently done. Really, really, really well done. Yeah, it was such an unusual uh, doctor's first scene. Um, but yeah, that confidence really makes a huge difference. Uh, it was an interesting choice. And yeah, I've no idea what it would be like. I don't know what that guy would be like versus other baddies. Keen to see. Yeah, very, very much looking forward to it. Okay, well, that is all we have time for. So, um, roll on the Christmas special. I can't believe that it's only actually just over two weeks away. You know, we've just come out of a a year-long plus, what was it, 13 months or so, Doctor Who drought on TV. And uh, now we've got a a two-week one. I'm sure we'll be able to cope just about. And hopefully, Series 1 slash 14 will be kind of... Uh, pretty close pretty close behind it as well you know i'm hoping it's a earlier in the year type thing it'll be interesting to see how that goes but in the meantime i will say a very big thank you to greg we'll see you all at christmas time a thank you and goodbye to gareth see you around and a thank you and goodbye to mansell thanks And we'll be back for more spodcasting very soon. Goodbye now.